listening to the Survival in Motion podcast. Learn, adapt, prepare, survive. Hello, everyone. This is author Cal Wilson. Welcome to another episode of the Survival in Motion podcast. On today's episode, I'm going to be discussing some conspiracy theories and what I think they all might have in common. But before we get to that, I've got a couple of shameless plugs I want to make. First is Christian Toto. T-O-T-O has a great book coming out in January called Virtue Bombs, and I would recommend that you check it out and possibly consider buying it. Christian Toto, I worked with him many years ago when he was involved with the Breitbart series of websites. He was one of the editors there, and I worked with him there. Christian Toto, T-O-T-O is his name. So check out his book when it comes out in January called Virtue Bombs. And while I'm on the subject of shameless plugs, I'm not plugging my own books for once, but I'd like to recommend that you check out books by a couple of authors who are friends of mine and friends of our family. The first is Lorena McCourtney, M-C-C-O-U-R-T-N-E-Y, a very polished author of some very well-written books, and Christianity is the topic in a lot of her books. So I'd recommend you check out her books, Lorena McCourtney. And also another one, friend of the family, is Sabella Giorello, G-I-O-R-E-L-L-O. She writes mostly like action suspense books. So I'd recommend you check out the books by both of these authors, Lorena McCourtney and Sabella Giorello. Here's another book coming out, and I don't know the author, but I think it's an important one coming out by Molly Hemingway called Rigged. It's about the 2020 U.S. presidential election. It will be coming out in October. And I think that this might be just the first hint that we might be allowed by the powers that be to discuss the 2020 election. I'll talk about that later on in this podcast. But it's a subject that is routinely kicked off of social media, and we're just not allowed to talk about it. But now comes a book by Molly Hemingway, where that's all she talks about. And I'm looking forward to that book coming out. And I hope that the release of this book presages an era where we can actually talk about the 2020 elections. In this episode, I wanted to talk about some conspiracy theories, but there's one thing that I think is in common with a lot of these conspiracy theories, and that is that we're not supposed to be discussing them. The powers that be, whether it's the government or the intelligentsia or the elite out there, they've decided that there's one explanation for a certain issue, and that's all we're allowed to accept, and we're not supposed to think for ourselves. That's one thing in common with a lot of discussions of different subjects nowadays. And it reminds me of that scene at the very end of the movie Wizard of Oz, where If you'll recall from that movie, Dorothy and the Tin Man and the Scarecrow and the Lion and, of course, her dog Toto, they spend the movie trying to get an audience with the Wizard of Oz. And at the very end of the movie, they're finally able to get into this big auditorium where they're going to finally 
have an audience with the Wizard of Oz. And he's this big, huge face on the screen in this, like, like a big auditorium. And he's yelling at them. And, he's, you know, the pyrotechnics is going on. You know, the flames are coming out the side of the screen. And he's, he's yelling at them, come back tomorrow. I'm not going to talk to you right now. Everybody's shaking. You, you see their legs just kind of wobbling back and forth. Everybody's nervous. And the dog, Toto, just goes along to the side and pulls back this curtain off to the side. And then you see the Wizard of Oz says, pay no attention to that man behind the curtain. And everybody's too nervous to think about it that much. But Dorothy takes a few steps over and finishes opening up the curtain and says, wait a minute, what are you doing here? And the guy eventually fesses up. Yeah, okay. I'm the Wizard of Oz, and this is all kind of a scam. Anyway, that's kind of the image that comes into my mind when so many of these popular topics come up, that we're told not to consider that man behind the curtain. Don't look at that man behind the curtain. And way too many Americans nowadays will listen to that and say, oh, okay, okay, I definitely will not consider that man behind the curtain. Or picture another situation where Dorothy takes a couple of steps towards the curtain, and then the scarecrow says, wait a minute, you know, stands in her way and says, wait a minute, we were just told not to look at that man behind the curtain. Oh, okay, okay. So we're not going to be looking at that man behind the curtain. You know, we're here to follow instructions, and we're told not to consider that man behind the curtain, so by golly, we're not going to look at that man behind the curtain. Oh, okay. Or picture the situation where... The Wizard of Oz says, pay no attention to that man behind the curtain. And then everybody like backs off. It says, okay, no problem. No problem. We were told not to consider that man behind the curtain. So definitely we're not going to consider that man behind the curtain. I think that's way too many Americans nowadays. That's their attitude. You know, we've been told not to consider that man behind the curtain. So definitely we're not going to consider that man behind the curtain. So many Americans would say, oh, okay, yeah, no problem. I won't consider that man behind the curtain. And I'm sorry you even had to tell me not to look at that man behind the curtain. I mean, so much of society today says, oh, okay, okay, no problem. And I know I'm preaching to the choir here by virtue of the fact that you're listening to a prepper podcast. We preppers don't fall into line. We don't take instructions well on what we're allowed to think and what we're not allowed to think. And I think your your average survivalist or prepper would say, wait a minute, excuse me, I'm going to go look at that man behind the curtain. I'm going to assess the situation and I'm going to come up with my own decision. Thank you very much. We're not the types to say, "Oh, oh, okay. But it's really too bad that too many Americans out there are all too happy to say, oh, okay, okay, no problem. No problem. We've been told not to consider that man behind the curtain, so we're not going to consider that man behind the curtain. It seems to be a common theme with a lot of what I'm going to be discussing today and a lot of the issues of the day. In other words, we're told you're not allowed to think other than the approved group think of all of these issues. And way too many Americans are content to say, oh, okay, okay, no problem. And before I get into the meat of a lot of these issues. I just want to read this. I want to read the First Amendment. Congress shall make no law respecting an establishment of religion or prohibiting the free exercise thereof or abridging the freedom of speech or of the press or of the right of the people peaceably to assemble and to petition the government for a redress of grievances. 
as you can tell, this First Amendment has several rights that the average American citizen is supposed to be protected from government curtailing those rights. And the issue of bridging the freedom of speech, so many people nowadays, and I've heard this argument, I've understood it in the past, that social media being a private thing, that's too bad. This is not a restriction on government. When you express your thoughts on social media, and social media censors your ideas, hey, well, that's private enterprise. There's nothing about the First Amendment there. And the more I've looked into it, the more I think, wait a minute, it might not be government. You know, Facebook and Instagram and Twitter and the rest, it's not government, true. But they have special protections legislated by Congress that give government protection of Twitter, for example, or Facebook. So I think an argument can be made that even though this is not government, it's effectively government protection. And so I don't buy that Twitter can censor what you're saying. And that's just a private enterprise. It has nothing to do with the First Amendment. I don't buy that. I think that this First Amendment should apply to private corporations dealing in social media when government protects those corporations. So it effectively is, in the discussion of the First Amendment, it effectively is the government. So we should be allowed to discuss our thoughts freely and openly on social media, despite the fact that social media is officially private enterprise. All right, let me move on. The Afghanistan pullout, I think, was so bad. It's my theory that it was really an inside job and some people who were involved with it purposely did this badly. And let me explain what I'm talking about as a backup. Well, as a backup to a backup, <laughs> you might recall from history that Woodrow Wilson was president in the World War I days. And towards the end of his presidency, he had a massive stroke that really incapacitated him. And his wife wound up doing a lot of the ministerial duties of the presidency. And Woodrow Wilson, the president, was, you know, it was possible to see him walking from the White House to his carriage or whatever and, and waving at people. But the real job of president was being done by his wife at the time. And historians agree on this. This is not controversial. Fast forward to today. I think what we have is a president right now who is suffering from dementia. He's clearly not all there. And I believe, this is not accepted by everybody, but it's my theory that we have an unofficial committee to be the president. You've heard of the Nixon days, the committee to reelect the president. Well, I think this is the committee to be the president. And I don't think it's an official thing. I think they're just handful of people, maybe five or six or seven. And it might be a fluid group. You know, in other words, some might leave, some new people might come in. I don't think it's got an official name. That's just my theory of what's going on behind the scenes. And I believe that the Afghanistan pullout, which was already a goal of the United States, I, I think as far back as Obama, I believe, the goal long term was that we were going to pull out American troops and hopefully let Afghanistan remain on its own in peace without the Taliban taking over. And in my opinion, one or more people in this committee to be the president 
tried to screw this up. And I think that the Afghanistan pullout is so bad. What happened was such a disaster. It can't be just, oops, you know, it's not possible. I mean, there were memos from people on the ground making their way up to the White House saying, hey, this is not going to end very pretty. It's going to be very ugly and it's going to be very quick unless we change course. And I think that those memos were thrown in the trash can. And I think that one or more people involved in what was going on meant for this to go badly. There was a list handed to the Taliban of the remaining American citizens in Afghanistan and the Afghani citizens who helped the United States military. That list was handed over to the Taliban. Can you help us get these people out? Oh, yeah, sure. Oh, yeah. And now those people are being hunted down. And we don't know how many Americans are still left in Afghanistan, but it's only a matter of time before it becomes a blatant hostage situation. We'll let these certain American citizens go if you pay this or if you do that or whatever. It was handled that badly. And if you're not convinced, I've got a list of all the armaments that were left behind. This is about $80 billion worth of armaments. I mean, this makes Afghanistan under the Taliban a very well-fortified country today, thanks to our American screw-up in Afghanistan. Listen to this. 80,000 vehicles were left behind, including 4,700 late-model Humvees, 600,000 weapons of various sorts, uh, 162,000 pieces of communication equipment, more than 200 aircraft, 20,000-plus grenades, one of which can ruin your whole day, 1,400 grenade launchers, 7,000 machine guns. And let me go further down the list here. That's just for starters. 100 helicopters, including 33 Blackhawks, four C-130 transport planes, and 60 other fixed-wing aircraft. A lot of the communication equipment includes, you know, walkie-talkies, but a lot of it includes the night vision goggles which give everybody an advantage in warfare. So thanks to our screw-up in Afghanistan, the Taliban in Afghanistan can be considered a very well-fortified country. I'm just really glad that they didn't leave behind any nuclear weapons. I mean, if there had been anything much bigger than what they had, I'm sure they would have left that there as well. It's just a total disaster. And it's gone beyond the idea of, oh, oops. I think what's going on is one or more people involved did this on purpose. And you might say, well, that's kind of cynical. What would be the motive? What would be the motive of these people, these people you mentioned who might have been in on it and have done this on purpose? Well, listen to your average liberal political talking points. Just about every one of them nowadays talks about what a terrible country the United States is. That, I think, goes further to explain the motive behind however many people were in on this and purposely screwed it up. All right, here's another issue I wanted to talk about is General Milley from the Joint Chiefs of Staff. After the January 6th so-called uprising at the Capitol, he called his counterpart in communist China, and he said, hey, if there's going to be some kind of attack on China, I will call you first and give you a heads up. Can you believe this? A general in the military. At some point, and it's not clear when, 
he got together some other generals and said, hey, if there's any kind of military activity, it has to go through me first, which obviously is insubordinate. And I keep thinking this is such a bizarre story. It's bound to be resolved pretty soon before this episode of the podcast comes out, you know, because it's so obviously insubordinate. And I keep thinking any day now the guy's going to get arrested, he's going to get fired, and there's going to be a court-martial. I mean, if for no other reason, you want to tell future generals, hey, you're not supposed to do this. There's a civilian head of the military in the United States, and if you don't like that, then you can leave the military. But it's not up to you to insert yourself between the decisions being made and the military. That's not your job. In fact, it's just the opposite of your job. Your job being in the military is to follow orders from the person who's in charge, who is the civilian president, not you. So I keep thinking this is going to resolve itself. It's so obviously an insubordination case. But another reason is just on up and down the chain of command in the military. That's what the military is about, is people higher up ordering people lower down what to do. And they're supposed to do it. It's not for the person lower down to say, oh, you know, I'm going to stand between you and the decision you made and decide whether or not to follow. No, no, that's not how it's done. This is the military. There's a chain of command, and the people higher up get to tell the people lower down what to do. That's just the way it works. And I keep thinking this will be resolved any day now. He's going to be arrested and brought in by a court-martial. But (laughs) this story has seen the light of day for over a week now, and still nothing's happened. I know General Milley has a date in Congress to testify under oath about Afghanistan. And I'm sure maybe Afghanistan will be talked about, too. But also, his communications with the Chinese and also his fellow generals probably will come up. I don't know. The whole thing is just a really bizarre story. But one last thing I wanted to mention on this issue is the idea of he's calling the communist Chinese and says, if there's an attack against you guys, I'll call you first with a heads up. I mean, like I said, the whole story is so bizarre anyway. But you might think, though, the Chinese person would say, oh, okay, well, that will enable me to get down to my bomb shelter and see if I can survive this. That's one way of thinking about this. Another way is that his Chinese counterpart will say, okay, thanks. That will better enable me to plan a counterattack against your country. In which case I would say, thank you, General Milley. Thanks a lot. You know, or (laughs) I mean, if this is a nuclear exchange, I mean, that's how this works. You don't tell the opposition we might have a few missiles headed your way or an attack headed your way because the opposition immediately will say, thanks, this will enable me to prepare my counterattack against you. Okay, I'm getting all worked up, but here comes another issue I wanted to discuss as far as conspiracy theories, and this is the ongoing COVID crisis, whatever you want to call it, COVID-19, SARS, COVID-2, whatever. This has so many conspiracy theories all wrapped up in one main problem in the world, which is this virus and how best to handle it. The one thing I think I can add to this ongoing discussion is I've noticed that lawsuits are just barely starting to make the rounds of families of people who have died in hospitals suing the hospitals because the hospitals would not allow or would not discuss the possibility 
of the treatments, hydroxychloroquine or ivermectin, to the people who wound up dying from COVID. Now, you might say, oh, well, that's kind of a dead issue. In the court of public opinion, that's completely dead. Everybody agrees, you know, because the doctors have obviously all fallen in line that hydroxychloroquine is worthless and ivermectin is a horse worming treatment of some sort. But see, that's the court of public opinion. That's not a real courtroom. In a real courtroom, what happens is the deceased's family sues a hospital and says, hey, my father or mother, whoever, died of COVID in your hospital, and you never discussed the possibility of hydroxychloroquine or ivermectin. And doctors will be made to testify under oath. And of course, the first thing they're going to say is, well, everybody agrees. Hydroxychloroquine is worthless. Ivermectin is worthless. That's the first thing they'll say. Everybody agrees. But see, this is a real courtroom. And the judge will say, well, maybe everybody outside this courtroom does agree. But humor me. Let's go through all this. There's this study, there's these doctors here, and there's this and this and this that say that in this early stages of COVID, hydroxychloroquine was found to be a lifesaver. And why didn't you, doctor or whoever, why didn't you even discuss the possibility with this person who wound up dying of COVID? So it's a difference between the court of public opinion where the government apparently has leaned on everybody and told everybody, you're not supposed to think about hydroxychloroquine or ivermectin, versus a court of law where it matters what people say and think and what they do and how they defend it versus the facts. So this might be the first opening in our ability to discuss these other treatments again. And I want to share a couple of doctor visits I've had in the last year. First was a standard general MD doctor. I was there for a checkup. Hey, doctor, what do you think of hydroxychloroquine and the controversy about that medication? Oh, well, it's been proven to be worthless. There are so many studies out there. And right away, I thought, okay, this guy's following orders. He's been told what to think and what to say, and that's what he's doing. Okay. The context here is, you know, while the medical profession in the United States is, for the most part, private, so much of what our doctors do depends on government reimbursement from various government agencies like Medicare and Medicaid and so forth, that when the government says, oh, you're not supposed to say that or that, and you're supposed to be saying this instead, most doctors go along with that because they don't want to go broke or they don't want to lose a major part of their medical practice's income. So that's what they do. And that's what this first doctor said with me. Okay, he's following orders, doing what he's supposed to do. Now, recently there was a second doctor I visited with and we were having a free discussion about different issues. And the subject of COVID and the various treatments came up. And the doctor actually said, yeah, I'm very skeptical. And I said, well, yeah, I'm very skeptical too. Doctors are only supposed to do or say one thing. They're not supposed to consider everything. And the doctor lowered their voice and said, yeah, I'm pretty skeptical too. I ordered 
some hydroxychloroquine and ivermectin several months ago, and it was never delivered to this office here. Now, you might have your thoughts about the doctor ordering this and maybe what happened, what didn't happen. All right, whatever. But the point is the doctor was in the doctor's own office and the doctor lowered their voice when they discussed this. I'm not going to even hint on who it was. You know, people who know me might know who it was, but I'm not going to even go that far. I just want to say that this doctor was in the doctor's own office and felt it to be a good idea to lower their voice as they discussed this whole issue. So that's what's going on. Doctors are being intimidated into not discussing hydroxychloroquine and ivermectin. And another thing you might say, oh, well, you're not a doctor. Yeah, you're right. I'm not. I'm not a doctor. But I feel like I should be able to make up my own mind on medical issues after seeing two different doctors with two different opinions debate the subject. That's all. At that point, I do feel like I can make a medical decision for myself after seeing two doctors who know what they're talking about arguing some issue pro and con. The powers that be are telling us you're supposed to think only this certain way. You're not supposed to consider anything else. In other words, don't consider that man behind the curtain. Another issue as far as COVID, and this drives me crazy, is the masks. Now, I've taken only high school biology. I'm not a doctor, but even I know firsthand that a virus is infinitesimally small. When you're wearing a mask and a virus looks at you, the virus doesn't even see the mask. I mean, viruses go in and out of your mask, no problem, just backwards and forwards, no, without any hesitation at all. And the only mask that would really stop that is a mask that has such small openings that it's almost impossible to breathe. And you'd also have to wear goggles because viruses can get on your eyeballs and, and get it absorbed into your system that way. But let's not kid ourselves. Masks are not anything to stop a virus. A virus is infinitesimally small and can go right through all of these masks that we're wearing. It's crazy. I was dropping off somebody at the airport recently, and there was a pretty slick public service announcement going on over the overhead monitors. Yeah, we're going to take care of this virus. Let's all wear a mask. I just looked at that. I could not believe the stupidity of it all. And it looked like they spent a whole lot of money on this public service announcement. But viruses, they don't care about your mask. Well, what about droplets? You know, hey, that's a red herring. If you're worried about droplets, I got news for you. You've already been breathed upon by somebody. And if they have a virus, that virus has gone straight into you, even if the droplets have not. There's only one person, I think, should be wearing a mask. In fact, several masks, and that's Dr. Anthony Fauci. And it has nothing to do with COVID, but I just wish he would wear enough masks so that he wouldn't be able to talk so much and we would not be able to listen to him. I think this guy has lost so much credibility. I don't know, four or five masks all at the same time, maybe six or seven. I don't know. Just enough to keep his mouth shut. And here's another issue. Speaking of Dr. Fauci, He's been under oath in Congress denying this. And now we find out from his emails that the agency he heads up has been sending our tax dollars over to China 
And that lab in China researched basically how to make COVID more deadly, how to make it more easily spread and how to make the effects of it more deadly. That's a gain of function, I think they call it, whatever. It's basically how to make it much more of a deadly virus. Why was our tax money going to pay for that? I can't think of a good reason at all. And if there's any entity that can be trusted less, honestly, a lab anywhere would be bad enough to be developing this virus so that it would be more deadly. But a lab in China? Come on. So, like I said, Dr. Fauci has denied all this under oath in Congress. Will anything happen to him? I doubt it, but it should. I'm sorry. Any of us take an oath to tell the truth and go into Congress and lie, we're going to be prosecuted. We'll find ourselves inside of a jail cell, but for some reason, not Dr. Fauci. That's why I think that whole issue needs a special prosecutor to get to the bottom of it. And if he's not prosecuted, if his agency is not held up on charges or whatever, then I'd like to see a report as to why not. That's the thing about special prosecutors, that they will prosecute the law and lawbreakers for breaking the law. Or if they don't, they come out with a report and they say, we're not prosecuting this because of this, this and this. So I'd like to see that done. It needs a special prosecutor. Oh, and don't get me started about this vaccine mandate. Actually, I will get me started on this. <laughs> if you listen to that speech by President Biden, where he's taking bold action to make sure that the vaccine is given to more and more people, it's a safe and effective vaccine, right? So then why would anybody who's been vaccinated care about those who haven't been vaccinated? I mean, he goes from one subject to the next and basically says anybody who's not been vaccinated, who comes down with COVID, they could give it to people who've already been vaccinated. It makes no sense because I thought the vaccine was so safe and effective. That uh, whole speech was bizarre. Another issue is if it's so important for all this to happen, why is it members of Congress and their staffs are exempt and also illegal aliens are exempt? That makes no sense at all. I mean, this is... A bizarre thing. But one thing I wanted to say as far as those who have decided not to get the vaccine, there's now becoming an issue that's discussed widely that African-Americans make up a majority of those who have decided not to get the vaccine. And the reason for that is that supposedly these people have a lower level of trust of the system, of the American government. And that kind of makes sense. In other words, the racial element is rearing its head in this argument, which I'm kind of glad to see, honestly. But, you know, no matter who has what skin color, there's a sizable portion of the population out there that is skeptical. Like my doctor said when they lowered their breath in our discussion, skeptical. Yes. Well... There are a lot of people out there who don't buy everything that the government tells them to buy, and they don't think the way that the government tells them to think. Another issue I wanted to touch on is the 2020 election of the presidency. You know, we're not allowed to talk about this. And like I said earlier, the Molly Hemingway book coming out hopefully will be kind of a springboard so that we will be able to talk about this and not either be censored or not have people in the conversation saying, whoa, 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 no, 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 we're not supposed to talk about this. 
I mean, start with the premise that this guy Biden, who was so completely uninspiring, got something like 80 million votes. It makes no sense. His rallies, so-called, there were very few people who would bother attending a speech by that guy. And now we're supposed to believe that something like 80 million people voted for him for president. It, It just doesn't make sense unless there was a whole lot of fraud involved or unless there was a whole lot of hatred of Trump, which is possible. For four years, we've had the media telling us, oh, this guy Trump is awful. He's terrible. He's evil incarnate. And that's depressing in its own right, that so many people would just listen to the media and say, oh, okay, okay, I'll think that way, instead of thinking for yourself. But in several states that threw that election, what we saw was a a pretty consistent pattern of the Trump votes were ahead, and then there was some point towards the end of the evening or early the next morning when all of a sudden, boom, there was a huge jump in ballots for Biden. And here's the way I think about that. Put yourself in the shoes of somebody who wants to throw the election for the loser so that the loser now wins. What they would want to do is they would watch the voter returns come in and you can kind of get a feel for, okay, uh, this candidate's doing better. This candidate's consistently not doing better. And what you don't want is to throw it off in such a way that you've got whole areas of the state with a voter turnout of 110%, because that's obviously fraud. Everybody would agree, okay, there's some fraud involved with that. So that's why if you think about it from their perspective, from the people, if it's true that they were trying to throw off the election for Trump and give it to Biden, that the powers that be... We're probably looking around saying, okay, okay, I'm getting a feel for this election. It's looking like we're going to have X number of votes total. And it looks like Trump's going to win this state unless we come up with uh, X number of ballots. And voila, you know, 1 a.m. or 2 a.m., that's the number that gets dumped off. And depending on the state and whoever was watching it that closely and whoever's trying to throw off the election in that state— that number would be enough to put Biden over the top, but yet not be enough so that part of the state has 110% voter turnout. If you're doing this, you want to have the loser win and still have it look like it's a legitimate vote. That's why 1 and 2 a.m., so many big blocks of Biden votes jumped in and appeared all of a sudden. But yet we're not allowed to talk about it. The 2020 election is a forbidden topic to discuss, and I hope that that's changing. You know, it's kind of the opposite of 2016. In the 2016 election, it's almost like we were required to discuss what a fraudulent election that was, because the Russians obviously helped Trump get elected. Well, we went through a couple of years of a special prosecutor looking into that and prosecuting everybody he could. And he came up with the news that that just didn't happen. But still, there are a lot of people out there say, oh, yeah, yeah, 2016, yeah, the Russians threw that election. But 2020, we're not allowed to discuss. Another thing we're not allowed to discuss is what's going on with the so-called insurrectionists from January 6th. 
As you might recall, there was a rabble-rousing speech by Trump on January 6th. He said something like, we need to fight for our election rights or something like that. And, oh, and be peaceful about it. And then the crowd started heading towards the Capitol. And the Capitol police skedaddled out of there. That was a bizarre story in the sense that the security for the Capitol building just left. There might have been two or three people left from the security. But I'm trying to think what I would have done if I was walking up to the Capitol and a bunch of people walking in with obviously no security at all. I think a lot of people were just basically tourists saying, hey, what's going on here? I'm kind of interested in this building and I'm going to look into it. And anyway, the whole episode is strange, but the point is there were some troublemakers, there were some vandals, but there were a whole lot of people arrested and they still keep getting arrested, newer people, but everybody's rotting in jail. It's not right that due process is not being applied in these cases of people arrested for January 6th. It's not right. I'm sorry, but whenever somebody's arrested for anything in the United States, they're supposed to have certain due process rights. They're supposed to be given a complaint saying, here are the charges against you. You have a right to a speedy trial if you want, and you have a right to bail, and you have a right to an attorney. And for many of these people, they're just sitting in jail, just rotting away. And I think what's going on is I think that the prosecution, I suspect they are overusing the whole enemy combatant thing. This was an enemy combatant, so therefore we'd be kind of dumb to allow the average criminal defendant rights to these people. I think that's what's going on. But it's wrong to arrest somebody and just have them rot away in jail. I think these people deserve due process and they deserve a trial and speedy rights, the right to an attorney, all that stuff. Okay, proceeding further down my list here of outrages and conspiracy theories. I was really happy to see the reactions of the local parents in that neighborhood outside of Sacramento. And by the way, even California has pockets of conservatism, and Sacramento is one of them. There was an Antifa, believe it or not, an Antifa teacher in some high school, and the parents just were furious. I just saw that undercover video, and I thought, well, that's too bad. Nothing's going to happen. I'd be pissed if my kids were in that high school, but nothing's going to happen. Well, I was pleasantly surprised when I was wrong. The parents marched into that school board meeting and just raised hell. I was happy to see that. This professor was talking about he has 180 days to turn these kids into revolutionaries. And this was an Antifa guy talking. And how was he going to do that? Well, he was going to scare the F out of them, right? He had an Antifa flag on his wall. He had a portrait of Chairman Mao from China on his wall. The single greatest mass murderer in world history Chairman Mao was hanging up on this guy's wall. And a lot of this undercover interview, he was justifying. It means nothing to me. Whenever somebody resorts to violence, I don't care. Their reason for acting means nothing. Antifa is a violent organization. That's all. End of story. That's it. I don't care what they say they stand for or what they're addressing or any of that. It's just a violent organization. That's all. You know, the brown shirts from Nazi Germany probably had 
some kind of narrative that they felt justified what they were doing. But it didn't matter. It's a violent organization. That's all. End of story. So I was very happy to see these parents raising hell like they did in that school board meeting. And by the way, why Project Veritas? Why have all these undercover videos? Well, because all it would take is a denial. We all know the media is slanted a certain way in this country, to the left. So if somebody came forward and said, hey, can you believe it? We've got an Antifa teacher in this public high school trying to turn our kids into Antifa people. He's got an Antifa flag on his wall, and he's got a portrait of Chairman Mao on his wall. And all it would take is a denial, and that would be the end of the story. But thank God for Project Veritas that would send in undercover video and get this guy in his own words. It's impossible to deny this. It's impossible to say, oh, that was out of context. No, we've got the entire video of this guy bragging to, I don't know who took the video, but whoever it was, the teacher didn't know he was being videotaped. So that's why Project Veritas is so great. I mean, you can't just deny all this and have the media sweep it under the rug. Anyway, I was glad to see the parents raise hell like they were. And I was glad to see a guy and a cameraman came up to that teacher on a walk. And that teacher said he felt unsafe. He felt his security was threatened. Now that's rich coming from an Antifa guy. That's all they do is make other people feel insecure and threaten their personal safety. And here he is talking about his own personal safety. That's the very definition of rich and ironic. Anyway, moving on to schools, an even bigger issue than an Antifa person teaching students is critical race theory being taught in our schools. And let me back way up and let me give you a kind of a personal story of my own. Many years ago, I was an attorney for the local prosecutor's office. When I left and I became a defense attorney, I actually had a judge friend recommend, why don't you apply for appointed cases, for defense cases? Okay. So I signed up for appointed defense cases. And these are the cases where it's usually three or four or five different co-defendants for the same case. And everybody has a right to a free defense attorney. And the public defender cannot handle all five different defendants because everybody always has a right to their own attorney free of conflict of interest. So the public defender will only handle one of the five different co-defendants. And private attorneys will handle all the remaining. And none of those attorneys are supposed to be in the same office our partners or anything like that. So that's how that works. So I did this for a couple of years. And in my meetings with various African-American clients, the philosophy came up where it wasn't the same words, but it was a philosophy basically along the lines of, hey, it doesn't matter what I did and what I was arrested for in this case and anything. It's just that... This country is so hopelessly racist that it doesn't matter what I do. Now, this was what some, not all, of my African-American clients would say. And I was able to talk a few of them out of this and say, no, you need to take responsibility. 
take your medicine in this case and get this behind you and lead a good life going on from here and staying out of jail. The problem was those I was not able to reach, they continued on in a life of getting arrested, going to jail, getting out, getting arrested again, going to jail again. Every time you go to jail, it gets longer, you know, just by virtue of the fact that the judge says, all right, he's got a a longer criminal record now. And basically, they just wind up living the rest of their lives just kind of a miserable life, you know, just getting out, getting arrested again, going back to jail and getting out and arrested again. It's a miserable life. But they felt that it was such a racist country that that's really all they could do. Anyway, fast forward to today, critical race theory. It's basically teaching kids that this is a horribly racist country. You teach African-American kids that this is such a horribly racist country that nothing you will ever try to do will ever amount to much. Nothing. And this is because of racism. Don't even bother. And for the white kids, they are taught that all you do economically, culturally, is a result of racism, of oppressing people with dark skin. And it's not that new for white kids. White kids have heard this before. It's a little bit more in their face, but it's not really anything new that they've heard. But I think for the African-American kids, it's kind of teaching them what some of my clients felt, that this is a horribly racist country that's not even worth bothering to try to do anything with your life. And it's just kind of move on and live a miserable life of nothing happening for you and you won't amount to much. And I think the African-American parents are the ones who are pissed off the most, and they're the ones who show up at these school board meetings, and they just rave about how horrible critical race theory is and how it needs to be removed from the curriculum of our schools nowadays. And I totally agree with them. I think these parents, over the last couple of years, have just noticed their kids coming home from school espousing this philosophy where just nothing matters. It's such a horrible country that nothing I do or work towards is really going to amount to much, so don't even bother. So that's why the parents are so furious when they show up at these school board meetings. It's so ridiculous. I mean, hey, white kid, your great-great-great-great-great-grandfather probably owned that kid's great-great-great-great-great-grandfather and mother as slaves. It's possible everybody involved here might be from immigrant families anyway. It's a silly theory that needs to stop being taught in our schools. It's also a way of just pitting people against each other. And it's a way of dooming African-American kids into just living miserable lives. And so it needs to go. It's also an inspiration to homeschool your kids. And if you look back in the various episodes of the Survival in Motion podcast, you'll notice I had an episode way back when when I discussed how to get started in homeschooling. And that's where you can take control of what's being taught to your kids and how they're being inspired. And that's what you want to do. You want to raise your kids to have the reading, writing, and arithmetic, but also look forward to the future and have ambition You don't want to run them down and convince them that it's not worth it to even try. So 
homeschooling is definitely what I would recommend. And also in that episode, I talked about how you don't need necessarily to have one of the parents home as a stay-at-home mom or dad. There are ways to do it. You have to kind of get together with other families, like in your church or whatever. But it is possible to homeschool your kid and still have both parents working in a job out of the home. There are ways to do that. So definitely listen to that episode I've spoke about on homeschooling. It's got a lot of advice on how to get started on homeschooling. Okay, this is the end of my list of outrages and conspiracy theories. But as you can tell, the consistent theme here is that there are these issues that we've been told we're supposed to have a certain point of view and we're not allowed to think outside of that point of view. We're not allowed to consider that man behind the curtain. I would definitely recommend, well, look who I'm talking to. I mean, by virtue of the fact that you're listening to a prepper podcast, it's people like us who, if we were Dorothy, we would say, excuse me, but I'm going to go look at that man behind the curtain. I'm going to assess the situation myself, and I'm going to come up with my own decision. Thank you very much. That's how we think, and it's too bad that more Americans don't think the way we do. In closing, wanted to remind you to check out Christian Toto's upcoming book called Virtue Bombs. That will be out in January 2022. Also, consider the books written by my friends Lorena McCourtney and Sabella Giorello. This just in. Soon we will be offering swag, otherwise known as merchandise, from the Survival in Motion podcast. That means that we will have various t-shirts, sweatshirts, tote bags. We'll have cell phone cases with the Survival in Motion logo on there and other things. So be watching for that at the Survival in Motion podcast. I hope you found today's episode of the Survival in Motion podcast informative, if maybe a little frustrating. I hear the music, which means our time is up. Thank you for joining me. God bless. 